Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is the word of the Lord. Y'all hear me? All right, perfect. Good morning, everybody. As John mentioned, my name is Austin, and I'm one of the ministers here, and I'm super excited to kind of bring this, bring this message to you this morning. Um, and it's funny, because as I was preparing for this message, I found this article that I felt like was really timely, um, and it was an article talking about how they're going to rebuild the Titanic. Um, so we all know about the Titanic, right, thanks to James Cameron and Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet and all that. But, but for anybody who was born after 1997, uh, the Titanic was this epic boat. It was like this luxury cruise liner, and it was dubbed like the unsinkable ship, right? And so all of these people like, got onto the Titanic expecting to have this amazing experience and this amazing time, and they set off on their maiden voyage, right? And in 1912, the Titanic hit an iceberg, and it ended up you know, kind of crashing, and, and a lot of people lost their lives. It was a terrible tragedy in, in our country, and so I'm reading this article about like them trying to replicate the Titanic. And the very first question that I thought of was like, would I get on this boat? <laughs> right? Like, like this, this uh, it's a replica of a boat that caused like one of the greatest tragedies of the 18th or 19th century, 20th, 20th century, 1912. Uh, and I'm going, would I, would I get on this boat? Right? And, and would you get on the boat? Was that something that you would put your trust in? Because ultimately that is a matter of faith, Right? And this question as to whether or not I would get on the boat, do I believe that this ship is trustworthy or not, is just a microcosm of the greater question, what is it that I put my trust in? What do I put my trust in? Personally, I'm like, there's no way I would ever get on that boat. So if you get on the boat, good for you, but I would not do it. Um, But all of us, we are all people of faith. Every single person in this room is a person of faith. Whether you consider yourself religious or not, you are a person of faith. Right? You put your faith in your job as a source of income. You put your faith in your home as a source of protection. Maybe you put your faith in a source in your family right, as a source of belonging. Maybe you put your faith in yourself as a source of a, a meaning or purpose. Right, But, but regardless of who you are, uh, you are a person of faith. And so that has to beg the question, what is it that I put my faith in? Right? What, what is the object of my faith? And so, as John mentioned today, we we're reading uh, from Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And we want to unpack this text just a little bit. Um, and as we do, we're going to look at three questions. There are three questions that we want to answer. What is the object of my faith? Or what is the object of Christian faith? I'm sorry. What is the outworking of Christian faith? And what is the orientation of Christian faith? So if you're a note taker, what we're going to do is the outline, what is the object of Christian faith? What is the outworking of Christian faith and what is the orientation of Christian faith? But before we do, we want to recap where we've been, right? John says, John mentioned this, we've been in Hebrews all summer long. um, And over the past like five weeks, we've been looking at Hebrews 5 through 10. And so uh, to understand what's happening, Hebrews was a, a, a sermon. It was a sermon originally preached to a group of Jewish Christians who were in Rome, Right? And under Jewish uh, Roman law, Jews had certain protection by the government. And now they were leaving their, their historic Jewish faith and becoming followers of Jesus. And they were kind of undergoing some persecution. And so this pastor is kind of preaching this message saying, Jesus is better. Follow Jesus. Don't, don't fall back. And so in chapter 5, we talked about how Jesus is the greatest high priest because he's eternal and perfect. And how he, he, he permanently mediates between us and God. 
And we talked about in, uh, as we went through that, that he offers a better covenant because his covenant is a covenant of grace that can actually make us perfect instead of a covenant of works, which will only reveal our imperfection, right? And then we talked about how he is able to offer this, sac- or this covenant because he was a greater sacrifice. He was a perfect and pure sacrifice that was able to actually provide atonement for our sins, unlike the blood of bulls and goats. And so that's kind of Hebrews 5 through 10 in a nutshell. And then at the end of chapter 10, uh, starting around verse 32, we start to get this idea that, that they might be undergoing some persecution in this church, right? He's talking about some, how it's a little more difficult there. And, and, and in chapter 11, he starts to exhort his people. This pastor is exhorting his people. And, and he's saying, don't fall back. Don't turn away from Jesus. Jesus is better. And then he exhorts them by showing them what a life of faith looks like. And so today we want to we set out what the groundwork is for faith. Because Hebrews 11.1, 1, it's not an exhaustive definition, right? This isn't the, the full summative definition of what faith is. What this is doing in our text is actually serving almost as a thesis statement for everything that's going to come below it. So he says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things unseen. And then he concretely flushes that out in verses 2 through 40 through the lives of these people of faith. And so if we want to understand what faith is, or what Christian faith is, we have to start out by asking, yeah, what is faith, right? And so, so just a broad definition of faith in general is trust or confidence in someone or something, right? Trust or confidence in someone or something. And by that definition, every single person in this room is a person of faith, right? We have, we have trust that I will go to work, and in exchange for my work, my employer will pay me an income, And I do that week after week, and then at the end of the week, I get my paycheck, and that faith was a pretty reasonable faith, right? It was was not uh, ludicrous for me to have that kind of faith. And so in some ways, we're all people of faith, and for most of the time, our faith is pretty reasonable. Um, But what has happened a lot of times in in, in Christian circles, uh, we see this idea of reasonable faith being kind of drifted from right? And, and we kind of almost like prop up this idea of blind faith or, you know, uh, you'll hear songs about just got to take a leap of faith or, or, or you know, uh, and, and the reality is we'll, we'll stop caring about facts and we'll stop caring about evidence and, and we just got to have blind faith and we just walk in that. And somehow that's almost become a, a better thing, right? We almost see that as a, a more spiritual thing. But the, the problem is that that's not actually like a biblical understanding of faith. And so I actually grew up in a denomination that worked this way that if you didn't understand something, you just have faith in it, and you don't ask questions, right? But in Scripture, we see that our faith can be reasonable. This whole idea of blind faith, it didn't even start cropping up until towards the end of the Enlightenment. There's this guy named Friedrich Schleiermacher, right? And uh, I actually missed this question on an exam in seminary, so I'll never forget his name, but he was called the father of theological liberalism. And uh, he started thinking like, oh man, with the Enlightenment and all this new discovery and stuff, there's no way Christianity can survive. And so first of all, Sorry, Schleiermacher, you're wrong. But uh, he, he started to write this doctrine uh, that, that became known as like the liberal tradition of Christianity. And, and part of that was this need for blind faith. And so if, if you're a person who kind of subscribes to that notion, uh, I, I don't mean to be like harsh, but you're actually leaning towards theological liberalism instead of theological orthodoxy. Because Christians, ancient Christians, going all the way back to the time of Jesus, have held that faith is made up of three primary components. Right? When we're thinking about faith, there are three primary components to faith. And we have knowledge, we have agreement, and we have commitment. Right? These are the three primary uh, building blocks 
for faith. And that is pretty reasonable, right? Like if I, if I started shouting at you guys, everybody, like run away. There are dementors in the parking lot right now coming to get you. Like half of the people in this room would be like, I don't even know what a dementor is. Like, I can't have faith in that, right? I have no knowledge of what a dementor actually is. And so I can't put my faith in your claim. That's why Hebrews 10.9 is such an important verse. It tells us that faith comes by hearing the message of the gospel. And so for us as followers of Jesus, it's important that we are people who proclaim our faith. And so in order to be a person of faith, you have to have knowledge of that object of your faith. But next, you have to have agreement, right? So if I'm making the claim that there are dementors in the parking lot, no one's going to go. No one's going to believe me, right? And half of you are not going to go because you're going to say, I don't know what a dementor is. I'm staying right here. And the other half is going to go, Austin, I read Harry Potter. I know that dementors are a made-up character. They're not real. I have no faith in your claim, right? We cannot have faith in something that we know is untrue. We can, we can fake it or we can pretend, but you cannot have a true faith in something that you know is untrue. And so now if I were to flip the script on that and I said, guys, here's the thing. There actually are not Dementors in the lobby, but there is a cougar in the hallway. There's a cougar. Stay here. Right now we can sit back and go, okay, cougars are real. I live in Utah. There are plenty of them out here. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, Austin's a pretty trustworthy guy, like he has never really like lied to me before, maybe I can believe his statement. And so that, that, at that statement, some of you might have faith, right? But we won't know if you have faith until you commit to it. If you hear that claim and you agree with my statement, but then you walk out the door and get attacked by a cougar, you clearly didn't have faith, right? People who have faith commit to the faith, that's how faith works. It's very practical and it's, it's very reasonable. And the thing that's beautiful, the thing that I love about Christianity is that we have a reasonable faith. Our faith is built on a historic event, right? Our faith is built on the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. And so if we said in general that, that faith is trust in someone or something, trust or confidence in someone or something, that, that someone for a Christian is God. And that someone or something is his plan of salvation through Jesus. And so if we're looking at a definition of Christian faith, we would say that a definition of Christian faith is trusting in the God revealed in Scripture and his plan for redemption through Jesus. That is what Christian faith is, right? And so if that's what Christian faith is, then we ask the question, the first question that we were answering today, what is the object of Christian faith? The object of Christian faith, that which we put our faith in, is Jesus Christ, his death on the cross for sin, and his resurrection. And so, as followers of Jesus, Jesus is our object of faith. And so there are some people here who, who might not be a follower of Jesus, you might not be a Christian, you're going to say, Okay, man, like you expect me to believe that it's a credible claim that there was a man who lived 2,000 years ago, he died, and then he came back to life. Like you're saying that's credible. To that I would say, yes. Yes, that is a credible claim. It's a reasonable claim, right? And I would also say, you're not the first one who thought that was strange. Jesus' own disciples thought that was strange, 
They weren't expecting that. Mary was the first person to see the resurrected Jesus, and she was confused. She didn't know what was going on. She's like, what the heck is happening? Right? Thomas was like, man, I love Jesus, and I loved being a follower of him, but I saw that man die. Right? And if I don't see him in, my, in, in the flesh, nail-pierced hands, I won't believe. Like, right? Thomas wanted evidence for his faith. And so we cannot be guilty of uh, what C.S. Lewis would call chronological snobbery, right? This idea that all these ancient people were dumb, they didn't know what was going on, and we're just so much smarter, right? Because you look at guys like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Philo, these guys who lived thousands of years ago, they're not dumb. They might not have had the internet, but they're not dumb, right? And ancient people 2,000 years ago, they knew the difference between a dead body and a living body, right? And they knew the difference, and they knew that dead people don't come back to life. They weren't just like, oh my gosh, well, I guess that can happen. You know, it's like they were, they were shocked by this. And so Luke, he, he was actually a medical doctor in his time. He, he heard about this message of Jesus, this man who died and rose again. He's like, I have to investigate this. This is crazy. And so Luke literally goes about interviewing people, person after person after person, saying, hey, what did you hear about Jesus? Hey, what did you see Jesus do? Hey, tell me about your experience with Jesus. And he compiles all of this testimonial evidence into this gospel that we call Luke, right? And here's the thing. The testimonies were the same. Jesus died on the cross under the rule of Pontius Pilate. He was buried. On the third day, women went to the tomb to find guards who were supposed to be there, gone, and Jesus' burial clothes folded nicely where his body should have been. Later, this man, Jesus, appeared to two people walking down the road to Emmaus. And they saw him. And later, he appeared to 500 people as he ascended into heaven. One of the, one of the earliest Christian sayings, right, this kind of um, part of Christian doctrine that was passed on from person to person, one of the earliest ones that we have testimony of, we can actually find it in 1 Corinthians 15, and so scholars actually date the oral tradition of this back to like the mid to late 40s. And then Paul actually recorded it in writing in 1 Corinthians 15. And so it's not this thing that was like 200 years later, 300 years later. This is what we think. This was like a few years after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And listen to what this says. Paul wrote this down. He said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So I told you what I also was told, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared more, to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. And so this was, a, this was like a, a creedal statement that Paul received, but Paul had also seen the resurrected Jesus. Now listen, if you're, if you're trying to start a new movement, if you're trying to start this new thing, and there are a bunch of people in you know, ancient Rome, a bunch of these Jews going, hey, let's start this new thing, that would be a really, really dangerous statement to have floating around your church, Right? Because imagine me, a first century Christian, being like, hey, guess what? There's a guy who died and rose again, and, and, and he says that your sins are forgiven if you trust in him. The first thing you would say is, yeah, right. And I'll go, no, seriously, talk to Cephas. He saw him. And you go talk to Cephas, and Cephas says, oh, man, that guy's crazy. That never happened. Right? The religion is done. Like, you can't start a new religion on historical events. They get crushed pretty quickly. 
I love what uh, Michael C. Patton wrote, right? Michael C. Patton, he's, a, he's kind of a theologian guy, and, and what he says is that Christianity is the most falsifiable religion. The most falsifiable. And what he means is that of all the religions in the world, this one should be the easiest to prove false if it was actually untrue, right? I'm going to read this quote. It's a little bit longer, but stay with me because it's really good. It says, if I decided to start a religion, deceptively or not, I would not make any false claims to recent historic events. That did not happen. Why? Because I know that those claims could be tested. Also, I would not give details about the time, place, and people involved. And more than that, I would not invite contemporaries to investigate these claims. For example, if I were to say that in 1965, right, he wrote this in like 2015. You can say the same thing in 2021. If I were to say that in 1965, there was a man named Titus who was born in Guthrie, Oklahoma, traveled about Oklahoma City doing many miracles and gaining a significant following, that could be easily falsified. I would not say that Mary Fallon, the governor of Oklahoma, along with Tom Coburn, the U.S. senator of Oklahoma, had Titus electrocuted. I would not detail that the electrocution was in Bricktown on January 13, 1968 at 9 a.m. I wouldn't claim that Titus rose again, rose from the dead, and gained a significant following that spread throughout Oklahoma City and has gone into the rest of America. Why wouldn't I make these claims as the foundation of my new religion? Because they can be easily tested and falsified. This religion could not possibly get off the ground. If, we were to make up, if I were to make up a new religion, all of the events supporting the religion would have to be private and beyond testing. That's why you don't have religions based off historic events. They are all, with the exception of Christianity, based off of private encounters, which can be easily falsified, or subjective ideas which are beyond inquiry. And the amazing thing about Christianity is that there is so much historic data to be tested. Christianity is by far the most falsifiable worldview there is. Yet despite this, Christianity flourished in the first century among the very people who could test its claims. And even today, it calls us to come and see if the claims are true. In the testimony from the Gospels, we have very specific information that anybody in that time could have gone back and tested and proven false, right? But it didn't. The faith grew and it flourished, right? And so as followers of Jesus, we can have confidence that our faith is built on a reasonable thing. It's not this kind of wishy-washy thing. We have a faith that's built on a solid foundation. And the thing that's beautiful is that when you actually put your faith in Jesus, not only can you have like the cognitive belief that this is a rational faith, but you get to encounter him. You get to have a relationship with Jesus, and that becomes even more evidence for you. And now as you're branching out through the rest of claims of Scripture, you can say, man, maybe that doesn't make sense, but I know Jesus. I know Jesus, and because I know Jesus, I can trust some of this other stuff over here. It's not like you're, you're putting your faith in the Titanic, right? The, the Christian faith is a reasonable faith built on unshakable object. It's not something that will sink. But the, the issue here with faith is that having knowledge and agreement is not enough, right? We need to commit to that faith. Charles Spurgeon talked about it like this. He said, you know, I can believe, I can know about a lifeboat, and I can believe that if I jump on this lifeboat that I will be saved. But unless I actually jump off my sinking ship and get into this lifeboat, I don't have faith in it right? 
And so for followers of Jesus, we have to commit to our faith. Faith in Jesus requires commitment. And so that is the outworking of your faith. The outworking of your faith is commitment to Jesus, his kingly rule in your life, right? And another way of thinking about this is thinking like, um, like pledging your allegiance to Jesus. And so I was brought up in a school system where every single morning we, we stood up, you know, we put our hand over our heart and we said the Pledge of Allegiance, right? And what I'm saying in that act is that because I've benefited so much from being in this country, right? Some people might even say, because I love this country, I will pledge to be loyal to the country. I will pledge to follow the laws of the country. I will pledge to submit to the leadership of this country. Well, if you put your faith in Jesus, you are to pledge your allegiance to Jesus because Jesus has freely called you into his family, because he has atoned for your sins, because he has given you meaning and purpose, because you love Jesus, you will be loyal to Jesus. You will follow Jesus. You will obey the things that he says to do, and you'll trust that they're good for you. You'll submit your desires to his desires, right? That is the outworking of faith. The outworking of faith is action. And so we ask the object of Christian faith, the object of Christian faith is Jesus, his death on the cross for our sins, and his resurrection. That's what we put our faith in. The outworking of our faith is action. The outworking of Christian faith is action. And so just to be really clear here, Scripture teaches us that we are not saved by our actions, right? We are saved by grace through faith. We see this all throughout the Scripture, but very clearly in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not, as a, not a result of works, so that one may boast. And so God, by his grace, he gives us this gift of faith to open our eyes, to see the beauty of Christ, right? And we put our faith in him. He cleanses us, purifies us. We're eternally saved in him, right? We talked about that in Hebrews 5 and also in Hebrews 10, that, that we have this eternal salvation in Jesus. But if this faith is real, if this faith is true, it should produce action, we see that as this passage continues, if you look at verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right? James echoes the same sentiment in his own epistle when he says, Faith without works is dead. And so what James is not saying is that, that we get our faith by our works or that we can work enough to kind of stack up our righteousness and be accepted by God. But he's, he's saying the same thing that Paul is saying in Ephesians 2. He's saying that our faith should produce action. Action is the outworking of faith. You could say it's like the fruit of your faith, right? And so we all know that on a tree, the fruit doesn't make the tree grow. The fruit doesn't cause life in the tree, right? God does that. But the healthy tree has fruit. And in the same way, like, I don't cause myself to be saved. God does that. But if I have an actual faith that's real, it will produce fruit in my life. That's what the second half of this verse is getting at, right? When it says, faith is the conviction of things not seen, this word conviction, it actually comes from a Greek term called, uh, it's elegos. Right? It's, uh, and, and, and so when you're translating Greek to English, sometimes you don't have this like one-to-one -one kind of perfect translation. And one Greek word can kind of mean multiple things in English. And so 
Fortunately, we have really faithful translations. The ESV is a very faithful translation, a very literal translation, but another very literal translation, uh, the King James Version, actually says that faith is the evidence of things not seen, right? The New American Standard, which is another very literal translation, says that faith is the proof of things not seen. And so the idea here is that when, when it's true faith and it results in action, it actually becomes evidence for the validity of the object of your faith, we talked about how, how faith comes from the hearing of the word, right? But our actions can be an apologetic. And so we need to be a people who are constantly being like, a, like proclaiming the gospel, gospel proclamation. But if we have true faith, we should also have gospel demonstration, right? We can't just have gospel proclamation. Don't stop short there. We demonstrate our faith. And so as you go about your life as a faithful follower of Jesus, obeying his words, displaying the fruit of the spirit in his life, loving being joyful, peaceful, patient, right? Being humble, self-sacrificing, considering the needs of the poor and the marginalist, not considering your own interests greater than others, right? Maintaining a life of purity and, and, and self, self-denial. And you do all of that with this supernatural experience of the joy that we get in Christ. Your life will start to become proof for what you believe. It becomes an evidence for it. It's not like just, like, just like getting into the Titanic 2 would be evidence that you think it's going to sail. It's not going to sink, right? Your action validates or becomes an evidence for what you believe in. Um, there's a really good book out there. It's called uh, The Brothers Karamazov, and it's written by this guy named, uh, I can't say his name, guys. It's like Fyodor Dostoevsky. I can't, uh, the book is great. I can't say the author's name, but like it's a really good book, and, and what he does is there's this main guy, his name's uh, uh, Palovich or something. He's a father. He has four sons, and each one of his sons kind of represents a way that we can exist in this world, right? A way of being. And the most two interesting sons are Ivan and Alyosha, and they're actually set up to be a contrast to one another. Ivan is like this incredibly handsome, good-looking, brave soldier, all these medals and that kind of stuff, genius intellect, but he's like a hardcore atheist, right? He's like, he's like new atheist before Sam Harris, before Richard Dawkins, before any of these guys. He is a big-time atheist, and he's like an angry atheist. He's antagonistic about it, right? And so Elyosha is his brother, and Elyosha is not of any kind of remarkable rapport. He's, he's kind of homely-looking. He's not handsome. He doesn't have any specific talents. Um, he's got incredible character, and he's a follower of Jesus, and so all throughout this story, Ivan poses these really difficult theological issues, right? These super heady arguments for why God doesn't exist. And as you're reading this, you're kind of like, man, Dostoevsky, like, like, you can't say that, man. You're actually a follower of Jesus. You can't say that. You can't put those words in Ivan's mouth. And you're hoping to get this awesome rebuttal from Elyosha, but Elyosha has nothing. He's just like, I don't know, man, that's a good argument. But then what Elyosha does is beautiful, right? He doesn't have the intellect to combat this argument, but his lifestyle becomes the answer to the question, so, so Ivan will say, we can't trust God. There's too much pain and suffering in this world. We can't trust a God like that. And Elioshua's like, man, I don't know. That's a tough question. And he goes out and serves the poor and the marginalized. And he shows how God is working in the world to remove pain and suffering. It's beautiful. And at the end of the book, Ivan's life is just a train wreck, right? And, and Elioshua's life is marked by love and joy, and peace, and kindness. And the people in the story are drawn to Elyosha. They want to be a part of what he's a part of. Ivan wins every single debate, and Elyosha wins the argument because he lives out his faith. 
And that is what we are called to do. We are called to live out our faith. We see this throughout the entire hall of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, we see women and men who have these deep relationships with God and they knew him personally and intimately and they believed in what he said and it produced action in him. Right? It wasn't a false optimism. It wasn't a fake it till you make it kind of a faith. It was a faith that was rooted in the person of God and his plan for redemption and their faith spurred them on to do great things. And now, 4,000 years later, we can, we can read about Abraham, right? We can read about how when, when there's nothing out east, God tells him to go east. And because he knows God, he trusts in God, and he does this crazy thing. And how, how he has this one son, and God offers, tells him to offer up this son as a sacrifice, right? And Abraham goes, man, I have so much faith in God that even if my son dies, God will bring him back to life. Because God said that he's going to make me a great people. And we can read that and we get spurred on by it. We read these stories and we're like, yes, that's incredible. I want to be like that. And as a follower of Jesus, you have the privilege of being that kind of person. You have the privilege of walking out your faith in such a way that it becomes an encouragement and an evidence to others for the validity of Jesus. And there is no greater purpose in life than that. That is the greatest purpose that you can have is to be an ambassador of Christ and inviting people into his kingdom, right? But our faith is not just built on the here and now. There is an orientation to our faith. There's a trajectory. And so the first question that we sought to answer is, what is the object of Christian faith? The object of Christian faith is Jesus, his death on the cross for sins and his resurrection. What is the Outworking of Christian faith, the outworking of Christian faith is action. Well, the orientation, the orientation of Christian faith is the future. The orientation of Christian faith is the future. And so we actually see this emerging out of the first clause, right? The assurance of things hoped for. We don't hope for things right presently. We hope for things to come, right? And this, this, this point is proven all the way through the hall of faith. We have, uh, you know, examples of Noah who builds an ark in preparation for things to come, right? We have Abraham who has faith in an, an inheritance that he didn't even receive. Moses decides to forsake the pleasures of living in the king's palace for a future reward with God. And all throughout the text, we see people who, who are not fixated on their present realities, but they're looking forward at the future that God has promised to them. Actually, Hebrews 11, it's actually, we're going to nerd out a little bit here if we're not nerdy enough already, but Hebrews 11 is structured as a chiasm, right? And so you actually see in like Western writing that a lot of time we'll front load our main point or we'll put our main point right at the end and like build up to it, right? But a lot of times in ancient writing, uh, this letter, this word chi, it comes from the letter X. It's like a, a letter that looks like X. And in the same way that an X kind of meets in the middle at a point, a lot of ancient writers will put their, their main point right there in the middle, and then the rest of the text is supposed to point you to that as you're reading it. And so if we're looking at Hebrews 11, the main point is actually in 13 through 16, verses 13 through 16. And we see that as followers of Jesus, that our, the hope that we're sure of is not primarily a present hope. It's a future hope. Jesus said that he's going away to prepare a place for his followers, Right? And then at the end of Revelation, I love the end of Revelation, Revelation 21, Jesus literally brings heaven to earth. He creates a new heavens and a new earth. And in this new heavens and new earth, Satan is defeated, sin is vanquished, the dwelling place of God is with man, right? And we get to be his people. He is our God. Death will be no more. There will be no more pain. And Jesus will make all things new. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that we will have 
new, perfected, resurrected bodies that are incorruptible and undefilable that will exist in this new, perfect world. We, we get to look forward to an eternity with perfect physical bodies in a perfect world in the presence of our perfect God who radiates with so much glory that there's no need for the sun because his glory lights the day. That is incredible. That is an incredible thing to hope for. Our hope is not in some sort of like existential, like we're spirits floating in clouds, right? That's Platonism. That's not biblical. The Bible talks about a new heavens and a new earth. And Jesus promised that we'll have a perfect life in a perfect world with perfect bodies in the presence of our perfect God. And so we are not living a faith for our best life now. We are living a faith for our best life later, right? And doing that empowers us to be self-sacrificing, self-denying type of people who put our faith into action because our hope is not in this world. We're not trying to get everything now. We know that we can love and serve God and love and serve others because there's a future hope that we can look forward to doesn't mean that we can't have hope and have faith for things in our present reality, right? Jesus is constantly encouraging his disciples all through the gospels to have faith for present things. But what that does mean is that our faith, the object of our faith is not the outcome of our faith. So if there's something that you're trusting God for and he doesn't seem to be answering that in the way that you're hoping he does, you can't let that shake your faith because your faith is not in the outcome of your faith here and now. It's in the outcome of your faith later. And our faith is in the object of our faith is God. And so when, even when things are not working the way we hope that they would, we trust that we have a good and loving God who cares about us and gives us the things that we need in this world. Right? Our faith is not in the outcome. Our object is not in the outcome. Our object is in God. And here's the thing, guys. Like, sometimes faith will actually produce suffering in your life. Right? A lot of times we, we, we have faith and we're hoping that it's going to give us a happier and more fulfilled life. But the reality is what this Hebrew, this little church is experiencing is that their faith is causing more hardships in their life. We see this specifically in verse 35. Right? Some people were tortured, mocked, flogged, chained, imprisoned. They were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword. Right? P putting your faith in Jesus doesn't ensure a life of comfort without trials. And trials and suffering are not a result of lacking faith, but they can actually be a direct result from having faith. When we expect to live suffering-free because we're faithful people, we're forgetting that it's oftentimes our faithfulness that causes suffering. These people mentioned in 35 through 38, they suffered because they lived out their faith, and their trial was the consequence of that. But it didn't make them shrink back from their faith. I had a, uh, uh, this was like concretely displayed for me uh, by my, by my three-year-old, right? Typically the greatest theological truths are, but uh, so I was out cutting my grass. My three-year-old Tally, she's out there helping me out. And so I'm over here kind of mowing. I'm like, okay, Tally, like you can go over there and pick up the sticks, you know, before the mower gets there. And, and so I'm, I'm cutting the grass and I hear this like blood curdling scream. I'm like, what the heck is going on? You know, and so I rip out the air buds. I'm like running over and, and she's kind of doing this, you know, and I'm like, golly, what's happening? You know, the, what, what happened was there was a, a yellow jacket that ended up just tagging her. She just got stung like three times, you know? And so, so I scooped her up and I'm like so sad for her. And I take her inside the house. I'm like, Tally, I'm so sorry. Like, I'm so sorry. Like that, that makes me sad. Like, I didn't want that to happen to you, baby. And, and she goes, but dad, in the new heavens and new earth, yellow jackets will be nice. 
And I'm like, that's it. Like, you get it, you know? Like, in the new heavens and the new earth, yellow jackets will be nice. Her faith was not in a pain-free life. And her faith didn't cause her to shrink back from helping dad in the yard, right? Her faith was in a future hope where yellow jackets will be nice. And that's so relevant for us, right? Our, our, our faith is not that we're going to have a perfect, pain-free, smooth life. And the trials in our life should not cause us to shrink back in, in our faith, right? But the fact that we know that our future hope is secured because we know the God who secured it, that spurs us on to live out our faith in action. Because Jesus is the object of our faith, right? And he is an unshakable object. My faith is not built on what I do because I do a lot of bad things, right? And my faith is not built on the outcome because a lot of things don't work the way I want them to. But my faith is built on Jesus. And Jesus is a trustworthy, reliable, reasonable person to put your faith in. It's really that simple. That's what faith is. It's trusting God. I love uh, Steve Timmis. He's a, he's a pastor. He was a former pastor at a church in the UK. Um, and and uh, he's a brilliant guy, PhD. And, and he's like, man, you could literally take every single word in the Bible and distill it to two words. Two words. And it's God looking at his people saying, trust me. Just trust me. Adam, Eve. I know that you guys made yourself unable to inhabit this beautiful garden that I made for you. But trust me, guys, I'm going to send a son who's going to crush the head of a serpent. Right? Moses. Moses, I know things are crazy in Egypt right now. I know Pharaoh is this tyrannical dictator. I know it's not a fun place to live. But trust me, Moses, because I'm a liberator. Ruth. Ruth, I know your husband died. I know it's just you and your mother-in-law and you're struggling and you're impoverished, but Ruth, I have a plan. Trust me, Ruth. Daniel, I know it's dark in that den. I know that there are lions, right? But trust me, Daniel, because I am the light and I close the mouth of lions. Mary, sweet Mary, right? I know that you're young. I know that you're not married, but trust me, Mary, I have a plan. Paul, he says, Paul, I know that you've done some bad stuff, Paul. I know that you've killed people who didn't deserve it, Paul. I know that, that, that you went out and hurt folks, but you can trust me, Paul, because I can use you. I can forgive you, and I can give you purpose and meaning. Trust me, Paul. And here's the thing. The message of the Bible has not changed, right? God is looking down at his church, and he's saying, trust me, church. Maybe you're looking at a world that's full of anxiety and you're seeing the division in our culture and you're seeing the drought in Utah and the Delta strain. And God's saying, trust me, church. I hold the world in my hands. Maybe you don't know where your provision is gonna come from, right? You're, you're, you're thinking about your work and it doesn't look stable. God is saying, trust me. I tend to the lilies in the field and I care about you more. Trust me. Maybe you're trying to start a family and it's just not working out, and you've tried every procedure, and every time that pregnancy test comes back negative, God says, trust me, my child, I love you, I have a plan. Maybe you're the, the spouse of an unbelieving husband or wife, or you, you have a prodigal son who's making self-destructive decisions, right, and your, your heart is breaking, and you're crying out to God, and God says, trust me. I open the eyes of the blind, and I bring prodigals home Trust me, church. 
That is the message of Scripture, and that is what our faith is. Our faith is in God. We trust God. We don't trust our actions. We don't trust the outcomes. We trust in a good and loving, perfect God who has revealed himself, who has redeemed us, who has brought us into his family through faith in Christ. And so if you're a person in this room right now and you've never, you've never trusted in Jesus, I implore you, do it now. Confess your sins before Jesus. Repent and trust that his sacrifice on the cross can atone for them. And that is literally it. That is what you have to do. And the Holy Spirit will indwell you and empower you to live a Christian life. Because here's the reality, right? Like, if we don't trust Jesus now, we don't have future hope. If we don't trust Jesus now, this life on earth is literally the closest thing to heaven that you will ever experience. This chaotic life on earth is the closest thing to heaven you'll ever experience. But if you trust in Jesus, this life of pain and suffering with some nice bright spots in between, this is the closest thing to hell you'll ever experience. You can cherish those bright spots. You can have the joy that comes through being in Christ, looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. And so if you have not trusted in Jesus, do that. Talk to me, talk to anybody uh, here who's a, a partner or, or on staff. We would love to have that conversation with you. And church, if you are someone who's trusted in Christ, live it out. Rest in that, right? Know that your faith produces actions and that your actions are going to be a testimony to what you believe to people and you will be given the ability to invite people into that. Put your faith to action and have trust in Jesus and the future orientation of our hope. It's to that end that we are going to pray today, and Brett will close us out with one more song. Father, we're thankful for you. We love you, God. We're grateful. We don't, we don't take it for granted um, that you sent your son to die for us, and that we have the honor and the privilege of being in your family. An incredible honor, God. We worship you and we praise you. And I pray for people here who, who don't know you, God. I ask that you would just reveal yourself to them in beautiful ways, Lord, that they would, that they would know uh, Jesus and that they would put their trust in him. And for, for, for our church, for the people who uh, are Christians and followers of Christ, God, I pray that you'd empower them by your spirit. I pray that you'd give them endurance and hope to go out and live this faith in the difficult world that we find ourselves in, God. We love you and we praise you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.